You know those moments where you think, I wish I would have learned this in school? Those are the topics that we love to talk about. Join me each week as I interview experts sharing their strategies for solving problems that us young adults will face throughout our 20s and 30s. So what are you waiting for? And if you want new episodes about adulting advice every Monday, hit that follow button. It is always fun to talk about success, especially when it comes to entrepreneurship. We are all hoping for this grand journey where we start from the bottom, but quickly make it to the top. That happened to my good friend, Chuck Cooper. His first business was wildly successful until it wasn't. All of a sudden, he found himself in shame, never thinking that he would fail. It all seemed too easy. Luckily, Chuck is resourceful and found the support to build himself back up and build a new business in the making. In this conversation, Chuck and I talk about the ups and downs of being a business owner, the fundamental skills to be successful, let it be in entrepreneurship or your own traditional career path. And we throw in a little bit of baseball talk, both as an analogy and my prediction about my beloved St. Louis Cardinals. We did have a little bit of technical difficulty with Chuck's microphone, so our Typical audio quality isn't quite there, but Kyle did work some magic to get it the best we could. This conversation was just too good with way too many great nuggets to scrap it. So thanks for bearing with us. We are also five episodes away from episode number 100. It is my goal to get to 100 reviews before then. If you have been a listener of the show, I would really appreciate it if you left us a rating on your podcast player especially if you're on Apple Podcast. I see you guys over there. You are freaking crushing it. Thank you so much for the support. So let's get into it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the St. Louis Cardinals fan, proud father and grandpa, and the author of the book, Unprecedented, Chuck Cooper. Well, Chuck, I'm excited for this conversation. It's always really fun to interview a friend because we have history and I have an understanding of some things that you're really good at and that I really admire. And I want to start our conversation off with a couple of things that I've noticed about you and over time have really become impressed. And I do admire a couple of these things about you. And just to set some context for the listener as well, We've known each other for a little over three years now. Actually, our first connection was February 2020, right before the pandemic, which is awesome. But I don't know what you and I connect probably three or four times a year, at least via video or phone or or whatever. And it's been a great conversation every single time. And I'm glad that you have finally made it to the struggles. I feel like this is a long time coming. But my very first conversation with you I was very lost at that point in time in my career. I just started my self-made sabbatical. And I don't even remember who introduced us, but right away, you took on this mentorship role for me. You listened and you provided guidance where you could. But for the most part, you were just a great sounding board for me, especially early on in that, which I really appreciate. And I'm guessing that you are somebody that likes to play mentor now that you have gone through your career and you feel like, you can provide back that way. But is there something about a particular person that really makes you want to go above and beyond and invest even more time and energy into someone outside of just a, let's hop on a quick call and 
and connect? Yeah, I think that, you know, over the years, I've, I've had the opportunity, obviously, to talk with a lot of people. And, and I've always had a heart for the younger generation. And so it's been one that oftentimes when I listen to, for example, I've listened to some older people a lot of times talk about the younger generations coming up. And I hear a lot of the way that they describe the younger generation. And I have probably a 180 degree difference in opinion on that because I see the 20s and the 30-year-olds, I see them as being the future of society to the future of our country. And so I really, I want them to be able to have a lot of hope as they're coming through those years, realizing that we live in a great country and we have a lot of opportunity. But when it comes to the individual, yeah, I'm, I really, I gravitate to those who are very, that are seeking guidance, they're seeking coaching, they're open to having a dialogue with people of other generations to learn from their experiences. And I'm just, one of my greatest passions is being able to use my life, the wins and the defeats, and be able to share those with younger people like yourself with the hope that you all will be able to take at least a nugget from that story and not have to repeat those mistakes. You mentioned defeats in there too. Have you always been open to guidance as well? Or was there a, a story somewhere in an early career or business for you where you learned the lesson of, okay, maybe I do need to be asking some more questions, getting some more advice, et cetera. So I grew up in a family-owned business and we were all, you know, the reality was we had everything figured out. We knew where we needed to go, what needed to be done and with the operations. So I naturally, as I entered my working career, walked right into an ownership role within a company. And the reality is I did not have a coach or a mentor or accountability partners in my life, we basically were focused strictly on being as successful as we could possibly be. In terms of revenue? Yeah, in terms of, of income and creating that lifestyle that we that I so desired. Mm-hmm. And I wanted the, you know, the absolute best for myself and my wife and my kids. And when I look back at that early time in, in my working career, I think that because I didn't have those mentors in my life, I didn't have guardrails. So we were basically just like going to Vegas every day and we were rolling the dice. And if we, we hit, it was great. And we would hit and we would hit. And so the business that we had was hugely successful. As I look back on it today, it was probably a once in a lifetime opportunity. and could have set us up for great things. I let pride and ego and the desire to hit it big early on, I tried to hit the home run in my 20s. Mm. And the reality was we lost and we, we missed out. And so we ended up exiting a business that we had that was you know that once in a lifetime opportunity. But the things that I learned as we went through that process was I learned it caused me to stop my world because it knocked me all the way to my knees. And I had to decide then, do you get back up? Or do you just lay there and feel sorry? I had a wife and a couple of kids at that point. I had no choice but to get up. And so we got up and we moved on and readjusted our life. But part of that readjustment caused me to be introspective and trip to really come back to who am I as a person? What are my morals and values and ethics? And what kind of values am I going to live my life with? And what do I want to do? 
I was going through that. And it probably took me about six to nine months to actually work my way through that process. The great thing was, is that during that time as well, it brought other people into my life that could serve as those mentors. And so I was able to really be vulnerable and to be able to share with them. These are the things that I've done. And as I move forward, this is what my dream looks like. And so they were able to encourage me through that, but they were also there whenever I tried to get over into the danger zone, you know, there to stop me early and keep me in the middle of the road. And that was so valuable over the years. And obviously as I went through, you know, the next 10 to 15 years, that kept me in the center and allowed me to achieve some, you know, really big success that I was grateful for. That would never have happened if it wasn't for the past. So when I look at defeats and I look at moments where I feel like I've been defeated, and probably the better word is probably a failure. Even as a young person today, if you go through times where you fail, don't look at that as you are a failure. Look at that as the opportunity to learn. And if you're going to make mistakes, trust me, it's much better to make them in your 20s and 30s than it is when you get to be in your 50s or older. Oh, yeah. I definitely want to ask you about the the game of baseball and how that might align with what we're talking about right now. But if we can go backwards to to that decision, that danger zone with that first business that you had, was there a key decision that was made that tipped you into the danger zone? Do you mind expanding on that time frame a little bit more? I mean, what tipped me into that was, one is that the company was really, really successful. So the first year that we had the company, the profits from that organization basically was enough to pay for it in the first 18 months. So I really looked at things as a, this is going to be easy. And we had more than enough resources at that point to live very, very comfortably. But again, it came back to that, that pride and that ego. I want more. What I have today is not enough. I need 10 X. And that's just kind of the way that I grew up. I grew up in a, you know, in a community and with a family, but that's kind of what our, the way that we did things. Because I was the only one of the ownership. I was the only one who was involved in the day-to-day operations of the business. Mm. So I was kind of separated from family at that point. And so I had full control over the decisions that I made. And so when I looked at the money that was coming in from the company and looking at these investment opportunities we had, I could see that if we put $30, we put into that. I mean, it was probably going to generate a 5 to 10x. And it created everything that I wanted. And I just didn't want to go through the process and go through the journey to achieve those results. I wanted something instantly. And I think that's another piece of advice that I kind of took away from that is life is not made up of hitting the home run every time. It's made up a lot of times just hitting the singles and the doubles and playing things conservatively early on and, and learning from the wins and learning from the, the loss. So that as you get further into life, you have a little bit more information to draw from to make better decisions. And so I think that's really where, you know, again, that's where my, the, the big things that I took away from that time period. And it was, I was probably 29 to 31, 32, when all of that took place. So I went from the mountaintop to, you know, the, the deepest valley within probably six months. But the picture I like to paint on that time frame is this, if you look and, and um, if you go to the west, out west, you see the mountains. In between the mountain tops, you got the valleys. And when you get to the mountain tops, 
It's beautiful out there. You can see forever. The sunsets are gorgeous. But the reality is there's not a lot of life that grows at the top of the mountain. And so where, the, where your food and your water and you know, where the animals a lot of times are, they're in the valley because that's where growth is happening. And I think from a personal story, that's where I got my greatest growth was being in that valley. And again, it, it gave me the time to, to really be able to focus on who I was and really the person that I wanted to be, not only for myself, but just as much for my wife and my kids and that model that I wanted to show them on what it looked like to be successful. Yeah, I think you're right. So many of my early learning lessons so far, too, has been digging out or, or climbing uphill in certain situations. You don't really learn too much whenever you're at the top. You're high flying at that point in time. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> and I love that you brought in the singles and the doubles. Maybe we can just keep the whole baseball analogy going throughout this entire conversation. <laughs> Are you a baseball fan? So growing up in Illinois, I grew up right in such a part of the state. So I love baseball was one of the sports that I fell in love with early. And in our area, you were either a Cubs fan in Chicago or your partner fan from St. Louis. This is a critical question, Chuck. Who are you? <laughs> I cannot go blue. It's all red. Yes, let's go. <laughs> I didn't realize you were a Cardinals fan. Man. Huge Cardinal fan. Yeah. Even more connected with you now, huh? <laughs> yeah, I go back to the days of Luke Brock, Bob Gibson, Joe Torrey. Um, yep. Those are the three that I remember so well. In my young days. How fun was that pool hall run last year? Oh that my was gosh. So much fun. Absolutely. Ah, that just, I mean, I know Pujols is probably maybe not a newer player for you, but he's no Lou Brock or anything like that either. But for me, I really entered Cardinals baseball in the early 2000s. And to see Pujols bust onto the scenes, leave our team after a decade of watching him, but then return and give us the show that he gave us <laughs> at the end of the season. Honestly, really all-star break forward. It was just uh, and whenever he hit that, broke that record and, and hit those two home runs at Dodger Stadium, I literally cried and I hadn't <laughs> cried in so long. My girlfriend was like, what? I have never seen you be this emotional, but there's a lot happening with me right then. And yeah, it was just such a special run. Oh, I loved, I loved it. And I know me personally, I've got to miss watching him play yeah. uh, as well as I'm going to miss, miss watching Yachty play too. Definitely. I'm excited about Jordan Walker, though. It seems like we might have a superstar in the making there, too. So maybe we, we let go of one and, and another one comes on. <laughs> exactly. I hope you're right. <laughs> to get us back on track, though, another thing that I really admire about you is your networking skills. You are such an effective networker, and I know you take a lot of pride in being a connector. I read through all of our LinkedIn messages and you know, once again, known you for three years. And just on LinkedIn alone, I saw that you introduced me to six people over the course of the last three years. And that's not counting anybody that you might've introduced me through email or a different modality in some kind of context. So outside of introductions and connecting, what are some other effective networking practices that you've learned over the years? Even when I'm before, well, I moved to Charlotte in 99. I knew absolutely nobody here. So my way of networking and connecting was just really to, to go into a room to go out to meet people. I mean, I collected thousands of business cards. One thing that I did early on and I continue to do today is when I get a business card, I will capture the information from the card and put that in my database. But if my goal for every business card I take in is to be able to give that card away 
within five business days. Mm. So I'm actively looking for for ways to be able to connect the person that gave me the card with somebody that could be of value to them. So whenever I go in and connect in a networking event, especially, I'm walking into that, not with the focus of what can I get out of this, but I'm walking in with the idea of who can I help in this room? And so I'm asking people about themselves and, and gathering as much information in a short period of time as I can. And so I want, you know, ideally I want to know who they are. I want to know what type of solution they provide to the market product or service. And I want to know who their ideal client is or customer is. And then the one question I'd love to ask is I said collectively within this room today, if we could solve one problem, if we could solve your greatest problem today, what would that be? And to be able to capture that information, that tells me who I should really be looking for to pass that card to. So when I come home from a networking event or at the end of the day, one of the last things that I'll do is I will send out an email thanking people for you know meeting with me or for speaking with me at the event. And, and that gives them my contact information. And I always ask them to please stay in touch. And so by doing that, just over time, they're paying things forward. It has been amazing to see the results that have come from that. Because with the work that I do today, I do very, very little actual marketing, no cold calls. It's literally word of mouth and, and my network and my clients refer me into you know, the new business that I generate each year. So I really encourage people when it comes to the networking side is really one, is be focused on the other person and be intentional about looking for ways to connect them with others in your network. And not have the mindset of, I don't want to pass you as my newest friend or my newest potential customer, be able to pass you to a competitor. I try to have the mindset of, there's more than enough, it's prosperity. Yeah, in early stages in our own business, almost all of our new business has come from relationship selling, meaning somebody has introduced me to somebody else and, and that has landed a client. I see that as not only an effective way, but also an enjoyable way to sell to. I've done plenty of cold calling in my life as well. And that was never fun, <laughs> never fun whatsoever. Content creation is another strategy that's out there right now that people find success in, in terms of selling as well. But honestly, my favorite is just hopping on calls like you, getting to know people. How can I help you? How can I support you? And you have no idea who's got to come out of the woodworks you know, a couple of years from now too and be like, hey, didn't you tell me you do this? Can you help me with this? And I'm guessing you have seen that with probably, I don't want to date you, but 30 plus years of, of networking under your belts. I've been at it for 10 years, maybe intentionally for five years. And I've already seen some relationships that started one place that are now over here. And it's sometimes like, wow, I'm so glad I, I went to that event. I made that connection. I stayed in contact with them because you just never really know. But I can tell you're great at it too, because anytime I talk about you. People light up. They're always excited. We were just talking about a mutual connection right before this call to Deb. And I reached out to her and, I, and she was like, oh, I, you know, I, I heard your conversation with Chuck. And right away, she was like, I love Chuck. I actually had him on my podcast twice because of how much I loved him. And then actually, you ran, I ran into somebody else you knew earlier this week too, Jason Hindenburg. Yes. Um, yes. Great guy. <laughs> I, was, I was on a call with him actually yesterday or maybe the day before yesterday as well. And he's like, Hey, I saw, you know, Chuck Cooper too, mutually on, on LinkedIn. I was like, yeah, I know Chuck. Chuck's a great guy. And he's like, Oh my gosh, I love Chuck as well. 
So you're clearly doing something right whenever it comes to relationship building. Well, I appreciate that. It's that's I do. I, I, the thing at this point in my life that I absolutely love the most every day is getting up and getting on LinkedIn and finding ways to be able to connect people. So yeah, I just connected Jason with another friend of mine yesterday in, that lives in Springfield, Missouri, mm. and they do a lot of the same type of work. But it's just again, it's just that opportunity to be intentional about recognizing who does what and who could be a value and, and serve somebody else. And it's just been so much fun. Very, very fulfilling to me. So somebody that's talking to business owners, HR professionals all day, every day, I know you're routinely advising them on what young talent is looking for and their future employers. But I'd like to flip the question around and ask you the opposite. Whenever you're talking to business owners, HR professionals, hiring managers, et cetera, what are they looking for when it comes to young talent? That is such a great question and such an interesting time right now because, I mean, I think when you look at things since the pandemic, obviously so much has changed when it comes to the employee-employer relationships. And I think what companies are looking for today is probably significantly different than what it was, you know, 2019 or pre-pandemic. But I think that as we look at where we are today and really we look at the path that we're going on for the future of work, I think a lot of employers are looking for the younger talent to come in and they're looking initially for not only what type of education do they have, do they have a four-year degree, what kind of experience do they have, but even if you peel that, that layer back, because I really think that things are changing even on that piece. I think the companies are going to start looking more at skill sets versus whether or not somebody's got a four-year degree as to whether they qualify for a job. But I think that to peel this layer back one more, I think they're looking at we've established the culture of our organization. So does the individual, are they a fit for our culture? And would they be, you know, is there an alignment there, not only on culture, but also on values? And, and I think that that's important for the younger employees, is, I mean, younger applicant as well, they're looking at the company to say, do they have the same values? Is the culture the right fit for me? And then the third thing is, I think they're looking at whether that individual is coachable. And if they have a mindset, they want to get better. They want to, really within their DNA, they, they are going to be a, a long-term student of the work that they're doing. Because if they're not there, then I think they're going to be passed over for a lot of opportunities because that is one of the, the things that leadership is looking for is, is that ongoing learning and development and really trying to become the best version of themselves that they can be. And I think those are the key things. The other thing, you know, really high level, they're just looking to a lot of times that people will just say they're going to show up and they actually show up to work. It's unfortunate to see in, in some industries today that that's one of the challenges they have is they just can't find people that are willing to show up and go to work. Yeah, not even just physically show up, but be present, be active, be excited about the role that they're having. And, and sometimes go the extra mile too. And I'm not saying you got to lay your heart, soul, blood, sweat, and tears all out for your employer. And if you're not grinding 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day, then you're not doing it. I'm definitely a firm believer in work-life balance. But at the same time, I feel like we have been losing a little bit of that that drive out of the the workforce and there's a little bit of a disconnect and sometimes it's hard to find people that you know 
are going to be just hard workers. And, you know, everyone doesn't come from the background that you come from. And it, it sounded like your parents kind of drilled that into you early on, especially your dad with, with just going out there and, and buying a dog and starting a business out of that as well. Can you talk a little bit about that and then maybe the 3 a.m. phone call story? <laughs> oh, God, that's great. You know, growing up in the Midwest, especially growing up in a farming community, there wasn't a lot of opportunity as far as variety of works. But my dad grew up on a farm and he raised cattle his entire early years up until the time he got married. Myself and my brother got to a stage in life where we were actually just about probably sixth grade. So we were just about to go into middle school. He decided that we needed a project, something that would keep us busy, something we could learn some skills from. And so we went to see family in Oklahoma and came back that year with four dogs. And they were, they were hunting dogs that we had purchased. And so the, the project went from basically just taking care of four or five, six different dogs to over from the time I was in sixth grade until the time I graduated college. We were up to a place where we had, on average, about 150 dogs every day to get up and take care of. And we were raising about another 250 puppies a year. You can imagine growing up again in the Midwest in June, July, August. It is really hot and humid. And on the flip side of that, in December, January, February, it is really cold. So it didn't matter if it was seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Yeah, we were, we were there having to take care of them. It taught me so much. It taught me hard work. It showed me it didn't matter what the conditions were. You show up, you do your job. And the reality was, it also taught us a lot about how to, how to interact and how to work with people. And that when customers would come on site to the kennel, we had to go through and explain all the background to each of the different dogs that they were looking at. But it also taught us how to negotiate and how to make sales. And I learned so much from that. But that's the, the 3 a.m. phone call was, I remember it very, very vividly. We had a dog that we had been competing with across the U.S. in some dog trials. And we had won some big trials with this, with this dog. And we got a phone call from a gentleman. 3 a.m. in the morning, phone rings, and it's a gentleman from, from Asia. And they're calling Sam, we want to buy your dog. And again, I'm growing up in a small town of 1,100 people. And this gentleman offers us uh, $10,000 for a dog just out of the blue. And obviously, it didn't take long to say yes. And we got, <laughs> well, yeah, but the dog was on its way to Asia shortly after that. But it was just, it was just, that was just one of those moments in time where I would never have got the opportunity to experience that if I hadn't, you know, if my dad hadn't started on this project for us. And again, that was just one of the highlights. We ended up selling out of our kennel about the time that I got married as well. And it was just been, I, I look back on those days and there's just so much, you know, actually we have a lot of friendships that still are in place today because of, you know, they got started at that point when we were operating the dog kennel. I have so many follow-up questions on this. <laughs> That'd be so fascinating. First, are you just always hearing the sounds of dogs barking sixth grade all the way through college graduation? That just, that just becomes a normal? It absolutely did. And what's really crazy, Justin, is we actually lived, we didn't live out on a farm. We lived at the very, very core of, the, of our community that we lived in. So we had neighbors all around us. And when I think back on those days, I, I cannot imagine the thoughts that they were having about us. When in that small community, a train comes through town at midnight, blowing its horn, 
and 150 dogs come racing out of the house and start howling oh, at the train. Oh. You could hear it for miles. <laughs> so yeah, there's lots of, there's lots of, I actually, to, to help deter that, we ended up spending about two weeks, we built a, an irrigation system to where we ran water lines around the, the, the kennel. And I had a switch by my, by my bed that when I heard them start to come out to start to bark, I could put the switch on and it would spray water out over the entire kennel and it would cause them to stop and run back inside. <laughs> but that was, that was uh, smart. <laughs> that was something else we learned a lot about how to do things, how to be a solution provider, you know, even in the early days. So it was a lot of fun. I love the the 3 a.m. phone call story, not only because you just, it's crazy to think you sold a dog for $10,000. Part of sales and successful salespeople, honestly, is sometimes just picking up the phone. Like it's literally being there and supporting. I don't know how much business I have won over my career just because I was the person that answered the phone or the email or I was responsive and tentative to this person's question. I was always very shocked and surprised how many people in the space just like weren't attentive to the inbound stuff that was already coming in. And then they were spinning their wheels so much chasing certain things. So was that always like a norm for you? Like, were you in charge of the phone? Like, you just got to pick up the phone no matter whenever it calls? That's just the way, that's the way our household worked back then. And I'm still, up until just a couple of years ago, I was probably still that away, even with my work that I, you know, that I do today. When that phone rings, it doesn't matter what time it is. I'm going to answer it regardless if it's 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. I've, I've worked on, with my wife's help, I've worked uh, greatly on trying to have more of a work-life balance. And realizing that when those phone calls or those emails come in at 9, 10, 11 o'clock, I don't have to answer it right away. <laughs> yeah, that's probably, a, that's probably a good thing to do now. I still don't know if I'm quite in that space yet, but I don't have a wife, wife that's barking down on me like that. And also, I, I like that you guys established that 530 open the door rule too. I feel like that's a good solid rule that should be allowed with inside your household. Yeah, it's one of those things where my wife and I both work at home. I'm at one end of the house. She runs a bakery out of the other end. And I, I need that accountability because if she doesn't come on certain things, I will be in my office at eight, nine o'clock at night. Just simply because there's not only because the work, there's a volume of work, but it's because I love what I'm doing as well. So I need, again, I have always needed somebody there to help me with the work-life balance side because when I look back over my years, and I've got three kids that are all growing at this point, and they, you know, as I look back and I think about those years when they were young and they were in the house, there were so many times where I may be physically present, but mentally or emotionally, I was not present at all. I was always thinking about, even when we went on vacation, we could go on vacation for a week, and most of that time I'm thinking about work, and I'm thinking about what I need to do when I get back. And I really wasn't present with them. And that's probably one of those greatest regrets that I have is the fact that I wasn't present with them. So if I could go back and do life over, that's probably one of the things that I would do from the time my kids were, at least from kindergarten through high school, I would certainly make it a point to be present both physically and emotionally with them. I don't know much about your wife, but she seems to be an important factor in your life. Did she give you some tough love around that area at any point in time? Or has she always been fairly supportive of what you're doing on the business front? She has always been 100% supportive of the work that 
that I did. And it's just what's really interesting. We grew up eight miles apart, didn't know each other until we got into college. Wow. And so it was one that, again, we kind of, we had the same values, the same work ethic. And it's just, there was a lot of commonality in the way she was raised and, and the way I was raised as well. So it made her really, really good early on. The part of that in that area, it was just always the wives oftentimes were extremely supportive of their husbands and the work that they did. I don't know that I could ever pick a better, better person to be my wife than what I did because she has just been, she's been there every step of the way through the good and through the bad. That's one thing I'm extremely grateful for. But today, I'm, she's kind of my accountability partner, which is really... As she should be. <laughs> there are pros to that, and there are some downsides to that. And when I say that, what I mean is she's there, obviously, to, to do what's best for, for our family. And I tell her, I, I, I communicate to her what I want to have happen, and she's there to make sure that that does. And again, we've got grandkids now, so... When they come, I want to know when they're here. And, yes. and I want to know that when, depending on what's going on with work, I want to be able just to shut off for five minutes, 10 minutes and go say, yeah, hello and spend some good quality time with them. So okay. she is a, so yeah, I could not have done and could not have the wife that I do today if it wasn't for my wife. She's impressive. Even your guys' move to Charlotte too. It seemed like she was in full support. <laughs> like, weren't you just like, leaving Charlotte or something. And you're like, I think I want to move here. And she's like, let's do it. That's exactly. We came here. We didn't know. We knew when I say we didn't know anybody. I had a financial services business that I was running from Illinois. And I had a client that originated with me there. And then they moved to Charlotte for his work. And so we came down to really just to do a kind of an annual review with them. I'd never been to the Carolinas. Nobody in our family had been here. So Debbie and I, and we loaded our three kids up and came to Charlotte for yeah, for a little bit over a week. Absolutely fell in love with the area. The last thing that we did while we were here was we went through a handful of model homes, because that's what they, we always enjoyed doing. But on the way home, the car ride was extremely quiet. It was a 13-hour drive, and about three hours into the drive, Debbie goes, what are you thinking? You're, you're awfully quiet. And I said, I'm thinking that I want to buy the house we just came out of. She said, let's do it. She goes, call the broker, call the agent and see what, what it's going to take. We had the uh, real estate agent snubber with us and I called and said, you know, what's it going to take? She told me to send me a check tomorrow. And I sent her a check the next day and started on that process of selling our business, selling our real estate, selling everything we had and just picking up and moving to Charlotte. And it was the absolute best thing that we'd done. As a family, was to, to go through that because it really it was a brand new start. Didn't know anyone. It was in a beautiful location, and it just created great moments for not only for Debbie and I, but also for our kids. They had so much more opportunity here than they would have if they just stayed, you know, in the central part of the state, uh, Illinois. Just the the education they got, the exposure to different cultures uh, was also really helpful for them. So. That part was just so much fun, and, and I certainly am grateful for it. The one other story that comes along with that, this was August 20th of 99. We were scheduled to move to Charlotte, September 1st of 99. But my wife, we were actually going to our pastor's home for a going-away party. I was in a car going on a country road with my two older kids in the car with me. My wife was in the car right behind 
uh, with our youngest daughter. And she met a car that was on the same lane of the road that she was in. And they were about to have a head-on collision. All I know, remember, is looking in my rearview mirror and finding my wife's car or seeing my wife's car flipping end over end out across this field. And the car ended up on the roof, and I turned around and got back to the car. When I got back, her shoes were laying as if she's pinned underneath the car. There's nobody around. It's dead quiet. The field that the car landed in was in August. So it was in a soybean field. So the beans were on shoulder high. So I couldn't see anywhere. I couldn't see anything. Nobody was making a sound. My daughter was letting herself out of the car seat. She was fine. But I couldn't find my wife anywhere. And what had happened was, I don't know how she was ejected out of the car. The seatbelt was still in place. Uh, she didn't have a scratch on her face. She had seven broken bones. Wow. Laying out in the middle of this field. And she was, she's a nurse. So she was already doing tests on herself to see if she had, if she's paralyzed anywhere. Nothing, no issues with that. She had broke her collarbone, she broke her ribs, she shattered her pelvis, and had some vertebrae in the back fractured as well. So that happened 10 days before we moved. And so we had a house to pack up, we had to make happen. So it was it was definitely a crazy time. But when I look back on that whole thing for both my wife and I, our fate grew so much during that time because it, that's the only way that things could have happened the way that they did, and the result happened. It just everything fell into place. And it was orchestrated by something that was completely out of our control. Holy cow. That story gave me shivers. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. I hadn't heard that before. Yep. Yeah, and Lexi, it was, uh, it was a life-defining life moment for our family. How long was the recovery process? So that's the other piece. So we, September 1st, we flew her to Charlotte. I drove with our kids to Charlotte. And she started recovering shortly thereafter. Every bone that she broke, they couldn't put a cast on anything. So I just took time. So she looked, she worked on her recovery from September, October, into November. And then she started working again as a registered nurse, I believe in late November. I didn't have a job at that point. So it allowed me to be able to be at home to help take care of her. And just at the point where she went back to work, it was monster.com and did this resume blast back in 99 to all these different companies. And while I'm sitting here reading a, uh, job description for a company based in Houston, Texas called, they're called Insperity today. They were admin staff back in those days. I'm reading this position and I'm thinking this is perfect for what I want to do. And the phone rings and it's actually the recruiters from admin staff is calling saying, I just saw your resume. I thought you'd be a good fit. So again, everything was orchestrated to such where I was able to stay at home with my wife. She went back to work. I found a job immediately thereafter, and the rest is history. That's crazy. What <laughs> What were you looking for with the move to Charlotte? Was the crux the fact that you wanted to get your, your kids into a better area, school system with more opportunity, or was there something else that you were hoping for with, with that decision? I think there is probably a combination of why we, we wanted to make sure our kids had more opportunity available to them. So that was a big piece to it. Then also just, I felt like it was time for us to make a move at the time. We needed a reset more than anything. And again, we loved the area and we found a church we connected with real quickly here and established a really great social network very quickly. And what's really interesting, Justin, is a lot of times 
in an area where you grew up, a lot of times it's generation after generation stays within a, a fairly small geography. Mm-hmm. And so I really, I felt like, again, when I looked at other families, I could see that if we stayed there, it was really, you were either going to become a farmer, you were going to work in a factory, or there was well, some other retail jobs that could be available as a career for our kids, even for ourselves. And so I really wanted to open their eyes and be able to you know, encourage them that where we, where we put boots down is right. We always welcome and we want our kids to come back. But the reality is I want our kids to go do, I want them to pursue their passion and pursue their life. And I want to be available to help them, to give them guidance or mentor them along the way. And I want them to create their own life and let their own, you know, Love their own values and be their own, be the person that they were they were meant to be. I think regardless if you lived in New York City or small town rural Nebraska, the opportunity conversation is one part. But just moving out of your hometown and going through that entire process can be a really great experience for a majority of people. I think one of my better decisions over the last few years has been leaving St. Louis and going to San Diego and now Austin. It brings a whole lot of challenges. I am not saying it is easy. Just completely scrapping and resetting your social network, your immediate social ne- network around you is 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 a challenge. But of course, if you got to change jobs, you got to figure out logistics around there, you adapt to a new culture, all kinds of things. I, I I encourage a lot of people to give it a try because you can always go back as well. Like I can always go back to St. Louis and settle down in St. Louis if I wanted to, but it's really challenged me and, and opened myself up. And I'm always kind of pressing on that 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 change skill because you know if you sit and and idle for too long, you you get comfortable. Yes. And sometimes it's really hard to break that comfort and lean into something. But once you do, that that's where so much good is. Like change. If you can cross that change bridge, like there are so many things on the other side that might be exactly what you're actually looking for. So true. I was just watching a uh, documentary the other day, and it was on the San Francisco 49ers. Steve Young was a quarterback, and he one of the things he made a comment he was he said, "When you're playing, I mean, obviously he's playing against great defenses, but he said you play through pain and you play through the challenge." And he said, "You don't you don't look for ways around the challenge." you play through the challenge and play through because he said, what you're really looking for is on the other side of that challenge. And so oftentimes, you know, and, and I'm probably one over the years, I've, I, there's been times where I've tried to shy away or try to figure out the easy way to solve that problem or, or not play through the challenge. But when I look at where my greatest victory has been and where my greatest fulfillment has come from, it's been playing through that challenge. Chuck, I'm so bummed our, our hour is coming to a close here. I, I still got half a page of notes here and so many other great nuggets that I'd love to extrapolate out of you. But I do want to, to start winding down the conversation. And I did promise that we would circle back around to the baseball analogy. So life as a baseball game, I know this is a, a concept that, that you like to talk about. Can you expand on that a little bit and how that might be applicable to a 20-something right now? Sure, I would love to. So I think whether you look at life, and again, I, I compare that against the nine innings of a, of a baseball game. And I think one of the things that has really impacted me a great deal over the last probably three to four years 
has been as I talk with you know others that are in their twenties and their thirties, I feel like a lot of times that when they come up against their late twenties or to that thirty mark, they feel like sometimes they've given all that they've got to give to the world. And so they really, in some cases, they just, they lose hope at that point. And it just, it has really had an impact on me because when I look at where they are in their life, even just on the average life, they are early on. And so when I look at you know, somebody that's in there at that 30 mark, they're really about the, you know, probably about the third inning in the ball game. And when you're looking at playing baseball, I mean, in that early part of the game, some people will take the approach of, you know, let's play it conservatively. Let's just try to feel the pitcher out. You know, let's focus on pitcher, maybe focusing on, I'm just trying to get in my rhythm and, and you know, get things really going. But then you got, you know, the other philosophy is, you know, you get a runner on base, you're going, you're stealing, you're playing aggressive. And I'm not saying that there's a right or a wrong to that. I'm just saying that you're in that second, third, fourth inning of life, that's where you can you can choose. Do you, you want to just kind of settle in and find out where kind of where the boundaries are and what you can and what you can't do? As you get into the fifth, sixth, seventh inning, the middle part of that game, then you can start to really focus on you know, really putting roots down and establishing. Maybe that's getting married, developing family, starting a, really a career at that point, and looking at you know, the latter innings of the game as one where you can you could have a chance. To, to win, you become more aggressive and go for the win, or you can just continue just to be consistent from start to finish with your with the way you're doing life. And again, everybody gets a choice to make how they want to look that. But my big thing is the one takeaway is, is again, for those of you who are in your 20s and your 30s, there is so much more to life, and you've got so much more that you can give to this world and to society. And the reality is, even as for the older generation, we need you, we need the, the skill sets, we need you as a person to continue to, to press on and to continue to live the best version of yourself. Because when I look at the mentoring, oftentimes the mentoring has always been from the, the older or the senior person to the younger person. I'm a huge believer today that there's as much value, if not more value, on the reverse mentoring. So the 20s and 30s, you all have got so much you can teach the older generation, whether we're talking technology, whether we're talking the future of work, whether we're talking just like skills in some cases, because you have a different perspective. So just because you're in the early innings of game, particularly if you get behind or you have a failure, that doesn't mean it's time to give up. It's time to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and let's learn and be and move on to that next chapter. Yeah, the game's not over until the very last out. And Absolutely. 2011 St. Louis Cardinals taught us that, that's for sure. <laughs> that is very true. I've forgotten all about that. Yes, right oh, down yeah. to your last at that. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, Chuck, it's been a pleasure. I'm so glad that we were able to make this happen. I want to give people the opportunity. We haven't talked about your business and what you're actually doing currently today, which is honestly my favorite kind of interviews is when you know, it organically happens and, and here it is for the opportunity. So, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what you have going on right now? And uh, you can maybe even lead in there with the story of what, what, what were you doing on a three-week canoe trip? <laughs> <laughs> 
So I think one of the things I figured out early on when I went through my uh, my business failure was that I really, I didn't need to be the CEO of a company. I really, for my heart and my passion and my skill sets really aligned was really being able to serve and to support people. And I loved working with small business owners, entrepreneurs. That's where my heart and my passion is, is being able to help serve and support them and help them achieve not only greater maybe financial prosperity, but also to be able to really create a life of significance. And so that's what I get to do today with my company, which is Whitewater Consulting, is we work with small and mid-sized business owners across the U.S., helping them with their HR uh, challenges or the people-related challenges that they may have. So our mission as a company is really to be able to provide clarity, peace of mind and clarity to small and mid-sized companies through HR solutions. It is one that uh, it gives me the opportunity every day to be able to get up and to live out my purpose, which is, again, I get to talk with companies all across the, the U.S. and help them solve the greatest problem because I feel like the people are their greatest asset and there needs to be a culture of trust and respect that needs to be built back in the companies. And that's the reason that I, I ended up writing a book called Unprecedented, of building a multi-generational business on trust, respect, and the value of people. And that's just something that's been kind of my part of my legacy that I'll leave behind one day. But to your other, your other point of how I came up with the name Whitewater Consulting, I knew when I started the company, I wanted to pick a name that was going to be something that would resonate with myself and with my clients. And this goes back several years ago, but there was four guys that we were in, up in Canada on a canoe trip. It was a three-week trip navigating the rivers and the lake systems in um, the mid, kind of in the central part of Canada. We were using paper maps to kind of navigate our way through the rivers, and we came up to a point where we knew that the maps told us that there were two sets of rapids that were coming and actually looked at everything, checked all the conditions, and we decided to go ahead and just stay in the canoes and just shoot through the rapids. And if we're going through the first step, we had no issues whatsoever. And it was just it was actually a lot of fun going through that. And the water in the current was picking up pretty rapidly as we got through that first set, heading for, for that second set of rapids that the map showed. What we quickly found out was that the water continued to pick up and it was getting really fast at that point. But what we heard was it wasn't a set of rapids. It was actually about a 20 foot waterfall that was on the other side. And the two of us in our canoe, and I'm sitting in the front because I'm getting closer, closer and closer to this point. And we're paddling like crazy and we're losing the battle as we're working against each other in some cases. But I remember hearing one of the gentlemen in the uh, the back canoe, he was actually already off to the side in a safe place. He was giving us, each of us, very, very specific instructions on what we should be doing, where we should paddle, how we should paddle. And within a matter of probably about 60 to 90 seconds, we were able to navigate out of that current and get over to eventually get over to the shore. The one I took away from that moment was, is that one is having real life experience is extremely valuable, especially for those that are going through difficult times. But two, being able to communicate clearly, effectively, what the instructions should be and how to help somebody get out of danger is also really important. And so I married those two ideas up and really am trying to become that guide 
for my clients, helping them navigate the world of being an entrepreneur. I love that story, Chuck. Bring us home with the final question. If you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? There's one skill, one area of skills that you should want to focus on. It's really developing the skills of growing your emotional intelligence. And I know that we talk about communication a lot through going through college, but understanding who you are as a person, understanding your emotions, what triggers that emotions, how you deal with the emotion, and how you project that emotion onto other people. That's something that we have got to figure out as leaders, leaders of your family, leaders of, of businesses. We've got to learn how to be able to understand our emotions and also how to be able to have empathy for other people. Right now, I don't know about you, Justin, but I see a lot of people living in the danger zone, their, their pressure meter, we're, we're living in red all the time. And we've got to figure out a way to be able to bring that pressure level down. So the way that I would focus on teaching that in college today would be is I would break the sessions up to where we would have some classroom teaching. But then one of the examples would be is I would like for the students to basically to go and to watch. If you have a tendency to lean to the right politically, I would want them to go and watch a channel that maybe speaks directly to the opposing view that they have and vice versa. And, and recognize how you, what your emotions are doing as you're watching that and mm-hmm. try to figure out then why is that happening and how, how can we bring us back to where as two individuals coming together, we can actually communicate and listen and hear the other person and where they're coming from. Fantastic class. You'd be the, the perfect person to teach that. That was one of my other things that I really admired about you was this openness. And I don't mean to offend you by this, Chuck, but as a older white male that is Christian, it's an easy profile to paint on you. But I have learned over the years that you are somebody that is so open to so many ideas and to so many other people that actually really kind of surprised me that you broke that profile down a little bit. And yeah, I necessarily know how to bridge that that conversation in this interview. So I'm glad that you really brought it home with this. And, and, and once again, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Once again, Chuck Cooper, managing member of Whitewater Consulting and the author of the book, Unprecedented. Chuck, it's been a pleasure. It's been great to be with you, Justin. Thanks for listening to the episode. As always, I appreciate your kind words. If you want to leave us a rating and review on your podcast player right now, that would absolutely make my day. If you want to find episode show notes, our blog, and other great resources, head over to tsirpodcast.com. If you have follow-up questions, an idea for a future episode, or just want to say hi, We have a contact form on our website and those messages go straight into my inbox and I promise you, I will reply. But all right, guys, I really appreciate you tuning in. I love you all and you're not alone. Let's keep making it through our struggles together.